This reading is taken from Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, all the way to the end of chapter 4. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn, The next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rose. Let's pray together that God would speak. Father God, thank you for the scriptures and thank you for this book of Jonah. And we open our hearts to you now and pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak into our lives. Please take the thoughts that I have prepared and make them useful for you, in Jesus' name. Amen. But I want to begin with a story, and it will soon become very clear that it's not a true story, because it involves a handsome prince walking along a muddy lane in the country when he espies at the side of a track a toad. Now, the toad stepped out from where it was, from under the trees, and started hopping along in step with the prince. Well, after a while, the prince stopped, and the toad stood stock still. So the prince bent down and picked up the toad, and to the prince's astonishment, the toad opened its mouth and started talking to the prince, and said, kiss me three times and I'll turn into the most beautiful princess. Well, the prince stopped and he hesitated and he thought for a moment 
And then he popped the toad in his pocket and said, no, thank you. I think you've got a great future as a talking toad. <laughs> and the book of Jonah is a little bit like that in the sense that it has a most unexpected ending. You and I might well think when we first read through the book of Jonah, and, and I think this actually on many a reading, that perhaps the most significant events have already taken place in chapter 3, which we read about last week, with the remarkable wholesale repentance of the whole of the city of Nineveh. You remember what happened, that Jonah spent three days walking across this huge city and just declaring in 40 days this city will be destroyed. And you remember that the king uh, called the whole city to a fast. And not just that, he covered himself with sackcloth and every animal was covered with sackcloth. Then this extraordinary thing happened that God relented. Well, we read verse 30, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he didn't bring on them the destruction he threatened. And at that, the book might have ended. Except it doesn't. And chapter 4 leads us to a very, very curious ending, as we shall see. It's one of only two books in the whole of Scripture that ends with a question mark. And I'll leave it to you to tell me what the other book is. It's quite an obscure one. But we're left with a, a very strange ending to this book, which leaves us needing to answer a question. I'm calling this talk God's love and the heart of man because that's what I think this chapter is all about. What this chapter reveals to us is what's going on in Jonah's heart and it's not pretty. In fact, it's pretty awful. And the very first verse of this chapter is where I want to begin. And I'll read to you uh, what it says. It says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Uh, and what's it talking about? It's talking about the saving of Nineveh from destruction. To Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Now, a little word of advice before we dig into this. If ever and whenever you think that God has got things very wrong, I would suggest that you think twice before you open your mouth. Because what's going to come out if it, if it betrays your thoughts is not going to be pretty. I guess the time that most often we think God has got things very wrong is when we ask ourselves the question, why do bad things happen to good people? That I think is the most common time I've heard and felt that God has got things very wrong. In this reading, in this book of Jonah, we have a similar question. If you like, it's on the other side of that coin. Why do good things happen to bad people? That's what's upsetting Jonah. And beyond question, the Ninevites were undoubtedly reprehensible, beyond the pale, cruel, savage, and barbaric. You and I could go to the British Museum today 
and we could see um, some of the carvings taken out of the palaces of Sennacherib and they depict people being impaled and decapitated and flayed, people having their tongues pulled out, reliefs of the Assyrian people making people grind the bones of their dead ancestors and even vultures plucking out the eyes of the dead. The Ninevites were not a pleasant lot. Added to which, to Jonah, in any event, they were beyond the covenant. These are not God's chosen people. They're outsiders. How reprehensible that God should choose to have mercy on them. And Jonah spills all this out. And he says in verse 2, I saw this coming. And that's why I ran in the opposite direction. Because I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And in saying those words, he's actually quoting, it's almost like a formulaic description of God. It comes seven times in the scriptures. And what I am puzzled to ask is, how can it be that someone who prayed such a sublime prayer in the pits that we looked at a little while ago in chapter 2 of Jonah can pray such a pitiful prayer from the summit. Because surely the prayer in chapter 4 is one of the worst prayers in the whole of Scripture. It's as self-centered as it could get. If I read it, you count the number of I, my, and me that there are in this. Jonah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. What I think is going on in Jonah are two things. I think he's peeved that his prophecy of annihilation hasn't happened. This is only a small part of what's cheesing him off, but it's part. You know, he, he, he did spend his time saying in 40 days this city's going to be wiped out. And now as he sits looking at what's going on, it clearly hasn't been wiped out. But that's a small part. He resents even more God's kindness to others. That's the core of his problem. And Jonah knows the theory of salvation very well. He's, he's told us, we saw it in chapter 2, salvation belongs to the Lord. But here's the problem. Jonah doesn't like or care for the people that God has chosen to save. Why has God chosen the Ninevites? What have they done to deserve it? Why is good happening to these terrible people? Well, even if Jonah's reaction is wrong, it isn't unique. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, if you preach grace properly, it will sound scandalous because it is scandalous. And quite simply put, grace isn't fair. Why not? Because no one who receives God's mercy deserves it. That was true of Jonah when he received God's mercy at the bottom of the sea. It was true of the Ninevites, and it's true for you, and it's true for me. And there are plenty of examples of God's mercy being doled out to people who don't deserve it, and curious choices. 
Think of the thief dying on the cross alongside Jesus. What a strange choice. Certainly, he's a criminal. But he's one of the very few people we know for absolute certainty that was saved because Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Think of the Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross who declares truly this man was the son of God. Hang on a minute, he's a Roman. And the Romans were persecuting and keeping the Jews in submission. What's he doing believing? Salvation for him? Surely not. Yes, surely yes. Or think of Saul to become Paul, a persecutor. Well, what's all this telling us? Amongst other things, it's the prerogative of God. It's his right to choose whoever he wants, whoever he wants. In the book of Malachi, it's put very straight. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God has the sovereign right to choose who is and who is not saved. And his choice might not always be your choice or my choice, but he won't ask us for our approval. Once uh, I saw this play out uh, in a very personal way, really. I'm, I'm changing the names of the characters in this story, and I must try and remember that all the way through telling you the story. But uh, when, when I was at boarding school, which I didn't enjoy for a minute, there were two particular characters who made my life a misery. Here I'm looking at scripture and remind myself what I've called them. So I'm calling them George and Hamish. And uh, I just uh, hope and pray George and Hamish aren't watching this. And, and, um, and these two guys were thugs and, and they were bullies and there was absolutely nothing to like about them and plenty to dislike, and that I remember. Well, I very happily left school, went off to uni, had a very happy time there, I was working in the city, and one day I came back from work and there was this message on the answer machine, and blow me down, it was from George. Oh, Rupert, I've tracked you down, wouldn't it be fun to meet up? I live just around the corner. And I thought, no, it wouldn't. And, uh, and so I, I didn't, didn't reply to the answer phone message. And over a period of months, there were quite a few similar messages left. But one day, the inevitable happened, I suppose, and the phone rang, and I answered it, not knowing that it was going to be George at the end of it. So now we were in a conversation, and he said, then wouldn't it be great to get together? I only live around the corner. Why, why don't you come and have a drink? And I thought, oh, well, I can't put this off forever. I suppose I better. And um, I think I drove around to his house, and I remember telling myself uh, on the way there, look, I'm sure he's changed. I'm, sh I'm sure he's changed. You you've changed, Rupert, years since he left school. You know, you're a Christian now, you weren't then, and you know, he's changed. I'm sure he'll be fine. But the moment he opened the front door, I realized he hadn't changed a bit. It, and then he, he said, come on in, and I've got a great treat for you. Here's Hamish. Well, well, well if George was bad, Hamish was worse. And, um, and, and I can't really remember the conversation or how it was going, but um, it, it went. And, and, and sort of inside, I was sort of quite cross and thinking, what, what a hole you've dug yourself into. Get out of here as soon as you can. And I think they asked me something about, you know, what are you doing these days? And, 
in a sort of recklessness, in, because I was totally indifferent to them, I sort of blurted out that one of the things I was doing was I was preaching in a church, and I would be preaching that Sunday at a church called St. Barnabas in West Kensington. <gasps> That's interesting. Can we come? I said, absolutely, you can come. I, I, I'm preaching on how to become a Christian. You can come if you like. I was sort of hoping that would put them off. Anyway, they came, and um, there I am preaching to a quite a crowded church, and there are my bete noirs sitting near the back of a church. But I didn't let that put me off, and I tried to preach the gospel as best I could. And then, uh, at the end of this talk, I, I made an invitation. If you want to give your life to Christ, you come and kneel at the front, at the steps, very much like here. And um, we sang a hymn or a song or whatever, and then there was a chance for people to come forward. And the first to the front were this couple, <laughs> George and Hamish. And I thought, they're taking the mickey. This just can't, this is, this is just absolutely typical. Well, after I'd received Christmas cards for 10 years running from George, telling him about which churches he joined and how he'd grown up in the Lord and his faith was doing this, that, and the other, I thought, well, maybe they weren't taking a mickey. This is God at work. Why? <laughs> it, it, there are so many people who deserve salvation more than they do. People I've been praying for forever. And, and they're miles from God. And, and you pick these. That was my Jonah moment. And the thing is, you'll never know why. You'll never know why. I don't know why God chose to call me into his kingdom. But it certainly wasn't because of anything that I'd done which was good. There's no good reason that God chooses any of us apart from the fact he loves us. I think the nearest I know to an explanation of why God loved the children of Israel is in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, where we read, God didn't set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all people, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. And sometimes you see this um, picture, I think, when you see people who have just become parents and they're absolutely glowing over their little baby and there can be no earthly reason why they love this little baby apart from the fact they love it. The baby's done nothing to earn that love but just is and their love just is. In Exodus 33, we read that God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And Jesus told lots of stories to illustrate that that's his right. And tucked into the story of a prodigal son, isn't there? This warning when the older brother doesn't think much of God's choice of a runaway son. And Jesus says, well, that's my love, and I have the same love for you too. Or the story of the laborers in the vineyard, and the ones who've been working so much through the heat of the day are put out that some people are let in at the last minute, and they're still paid the same, and God says, that's my prerogative. Jonah doesn't get that. He's the eeyore of his own revival. And a warning sound ought to ring in our inner ear when we no longer rejoice in the things that rejoice the heart of God. 
Jonah's decided that the Ninevites don't deserve saving and shouldn't be saved, but God has the right to choose. And there's something else about this too. Jonah has forgotten, I would suggest, what it means to be cut off from God's love. Because you wouldn't wish that on anyone. There are some landscapes, aren't there, which are so bleak, some events in history which are so terrible, some of the things going on in the world right now, which if you dared to look at closely, you would do anything to avoid people being involved in. So historically, you could think, for example, of you see pictures of the bombing of Dresden or Coventry after it was carpet bombed in the war. And you think, surely if you'd known about that, you'd have gone to any lengths to keep people away from the danger areas. Or sometimes you will inevitably see pictures of bodies of refugees or migrants being washed up on the shorelines in Europe. Or endless number of suffering pictures in the newspapers. And you wouldn't wish this on your worst enemy. Of course not. Well, what about spending eternity separated from the love of God? Because that's worse than any of the things that I've been describing. And when you think about that, surely you wouldn't wish that on anyone, Ninevites included. Jonah may not like God's choice of salvation, but what about the price of not being saved? That should swing us around very quickly and should motivate us to share God's good news. And I know we often don't talk about this side of the gospel. We often don't talk about the fact of judgment because it, it's easier to leave it out. But it is there in scripture. Paul writing to the Thessalonians, he will punish those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. It's difficult for us to speak the truth when it includes that kind of justice from God. But you and I know, if you've ever written a reference for someone, or you've ever received a reference on someone, you will know that everybody can have a good reference so long as you neglect to refer to the bits that aren't so favorable. You can say they're talented, very bright, and hugely popular. But if you don't mention that they're idle, unreliable, and temperamental, you're giving a false picture. And the person who employs that person will wish they'd been told the whole truth. If we just talk about God as a God of love, which he is, and never mention that he's also a God of justice and there is a price to not following him, then we're not speaking the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And when we remember what the price is of not following God, then there's no excuse for behaving like Jonah. Surely those of us who have experienced God's love would want others to embrace it too. Jonah had experienced God's love. It's absolutely tragic that he doesn't want others to receive it too. And before this book ends, right now, the Lord provides a little play. He puts on a, a little play to make a point. One of the words and phrases that's coming throughout this book of Jonah Repetitively, so we get the point is, the Lord provides, the Lord's provides, or the Lord provided. Let, let me read to you the little play or playlet that goes on from Jonah chapter 4. 
It's like God is saying to him, if you're hot with anger as you are, I'll make you really hot under the collar. The Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? And Jonah went out and sat down at a place in the east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade and he waited to see what would happen. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade to his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine and it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so he grew faint and he wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine. Though you didn't tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Which summarizing goes like this. Like the vine, did you? Yes. Cross that it's been destroyed, are you? Yes, furious. Well, let's have a chat about this vine, shall we? Did you plan it? Did you plant it? Did you provide for it? Of course not. You just pouted under it in your own personal pity party. It was a one-night wonder, and you're so angry that it's been destroyed. But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this vine, though you didn't tend it or made it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Nineveh has more than 120,000 people in it who don't know their left from their right. They don't know a thing. And cattle galore. Shouldn't I be concerned about that great city? God really cares for his people. That's the message. God really cares for both his people and his creation. The people are clueless, says God. Don't they need to know about my love? Of course they do. They don't know their right from their left. And you know, in our day, the majority of people that you will meet are clueless about the kindness of God. They know nothing about it. They, they really don't know about Jesus and what he's done. Should I not be concerned about this great city, says God. God is so concerned, so concerned, there's no end to what God would do to make his love known. He would come in person he would live life. He would show what God is like in the flesh. He would die for us. He'd be raised to life for us. I know it's familiar to you and to me, but it's wonderful all the same. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish. You don't have to be cut off from God. That's exactly what God does not want to happen. That's why God's opened your heart and my heart. 
God's concern for us is not in question. Our compassion is. That's why this book ends with a question mark. God asks us, shouldn't I be concerned and have compassion for these people? And the answer to that is, of course, of course you should. And so it follows, what about you then? What about you who have received my mercy and love, Jonah? Why aren't you sharing this? And why aren't you glad for what's happening before you? That's the question. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Of course you should. Suppose you saw the bombing of Dresden coming. Suppose you saw the bombing of Coventry coming. Suppose you saw that the boat full of migrants was going to sink. Would it be right not to talk to them about another way? Suppose we know that people that don't know Jesus Christ and his love are heading for eternity without him. Wouldn't it be right to talk to them about another way? Of course it is. Of course it is. And we must pray. We must pray that God will be pleased to use this church, to use us, to use your story, to use my story, to use every opportunity going to share the love of God and his compassion. Because people are not born knowing. And you are not born knowing. Someone had to share God's love with you and with me. Brother Andrew, who many of you will know through his book, God's Smuggler, uh, spent the whole of his adult life seeking out people to share the gospel with. And that landed him in many, many tricky situations, often talking to terrorists. And he is on record as saying, I'd walk through a valley of broken glass to share the gospel with a terrorist. There is no one, no one, that we shouldn't want to see saved. Ninevites or not, our friends or not, the love of God reaches out to them, possibly through you and me. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this book of Jonah. It's a very curious book, but very challenging, so searingly honest. And we thank you for your everlasting love. Thank you that remarkably you've chosen to reach out to us through Jesus Christ. Thank you that the scriptures say all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we pray for ourselves that we would call upon your name. We also pray, Lord, for our friends and our family, and those that we rub shoulders with routinely during the week, that you would have mercy upon them. And we ask you to look upon this church and look upon us and be pleased, Lord, to remind us that we're commissioned to be your ambassadors, that we are the light of the world. Lord, we pray, we pray for an outpouring of your salvation, that we will see people saved, that people will join us in this place who will have a story to tell of how you pulled them into your love. You won their hearts. And we pray that whenever we see this, that we'll rejoice over it. In Jesus' name, amen.
I invite you to stand now. We're going to 